Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will cover chronic hypertension in pregnancy. Chronic hypertension in pregnancy is defined by the American College of OBGYN as blood pressure greater than or equal to 140 systolic and or 90 millimeters of mercury diastolic before pregnancy or in recognition that many women seek medical care only once pregnant before 20 weeks of gestation use of antihypertensive medications before pregnancy or persistence of hypertension for greater than 12 weeks after delivery. Chronic hypertension needs to be distinguished from new onset hypertensive complications of pregnancy like preeclampsia or gestational hypertension because those may have different management schemes. Chronic hypertension is estimated to be present in 3 to 5% of pregnancies and is increasingly more commonly encountered. Now, because many pregnancies are unplanned, all women with chronic hypertension should receive regular counseling so that they can anticipate any issues that may arise if they become pregnant and optimize their health and care to temper risk. Now, this also gets into the choice of medications for antihypertensive meds in young reproductive age women, but we'll cover that in the next section. Although many women with chronic hypertension do very well in pregnancy, they are at increased risk for several pregnancy complications, including superimposed preeclampsia, fetal growth restriction, placental abruption, preterm birth, and cesarean section. Well, let's cover superimposed preeclampsia next. In the general population, the risk of preeclampsia is 3 to 5%, yet among women with chronic hypertension, 17% up to 25% will develop superimposed preeclampsia. Accordingly, women with chronic hypertension with superimposed preeclampsia have worse birth outcomes than women with chronic hypertension without superimposed preeclampsia. Now, it can be challenging to diagnose preeclampsia in women with chronic hypertension because their blood pressures are already elevated and proteinuria may be present before pregnancy. So in this population, superimposed preeclampsia should be considered if blood pressure increases in pregnancy and especially if there is new onset proteinuria or worsening of proteinuria in the course of the pregnancy. Laboratory abnormalities like thrombocytopenia, elevated liver tests, and increasing serum creatinine will also often distinguish preeclampsia from worsening of underlying hypertension. Additionally, in women with chronic hypertension, especially American, Canadian, and New Zealand populations, the data demonstrates a 10 to 20% prevalence of fetal growth restriction, defined as absolute or estimated fetal weight under 10th percentile for gestational age-based population norms. This is in all pregnancies complicated with chronic hypertension. Now, regarding placental abruption, the National Center for Health Statistics data show that women with chronic hypertension have a frequency of placental abruption of 1.56% compared with 0.58% in non-hypertensive women. Lastly, in terms of the maternal morbidity and fetal morbidity is preterm birth and cesarean delivery. The individual pregnancy complications just discussed lead to an increased risk of preterm delivery among women with chronic hypertension because, faced with such problems, early delivery may be judged as unavoidable, necessary, or better than continued expectant management 
in the face of chronic hypertension. Rates of preterm delivery range from 12% to 34% among all women with chronic hypertension, but can be as high as 62 to 70% in women with severe hypertension defined as persistent blood pressure readings greater than or equal to 160 over 110, measured at least 4 to 6, up to 24 hours apart. Alright, now that we've discussed basic prevalence and morbidities to include growth restriction, preeclampsia, preterm birth, and cesarean delivery, let's talk about management during pregnancy. Management of women with chronic hypertension ideally begins with pre-pregnancy care. Prenatal care of women with chronic hypertension should begin before pregnancy to provide counseling about the pregnancy risks discussed as well as to optimize medical therapy. A 24-hour urine collection for protein determination before pregnancy may assist in the diagnosis of later superimposed preeclampsia and provides prognostic information because women with pre-pregnancy proteinuria have an increased risk for fetal growth restriction. Secondary causes of hypertension Hypertension should of course be sought before pregnancy, although most will have a diagnosis of hypertension of unknown etiology. Okay, now regarding management during pregnancy, here's a clinical pearl. Studies suggest that the primary benefit of antihypertensive treatment of hypertension in pregnancy is the reduction of maternal morbidity by limiting episodes of severe hypertension. Antihypertensive treatment has not been shown to reduce superimposed preeclampsia placental abruption, or growth restriction, or to improve any neonatal outcome. Now, the exact goal range for blood pressures during pregnancy in women with chronic hypertension are not established because, at this point, there are no randomized studies to support one goal over the other. All right, the next clinical pearl has to do with treatment of severe chronic hypertension as opposed to treatment of mild to moderate chronic hypertension. The most updated recommendations for treatment of hypertension in pregnancy come from the American College of OBGYN Task Force of Hypertension in Pregnancy, which was also endorsed by the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. All right, so here's the treatment plan recommended. For women with persistent, severe chronic hypertension during pregnancy, defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 160, or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 105, antihypertensive treatment is recommended. But treatment benefit for mild to moderate hypertension, that's defined as a systolic blood pressure between 140 to 160, and a diastolic of 90 to 110, that treatment benefit is less clear, and thus it is suggested that these women not be treated with pharmacological antihypertensive therapy. These recommendations result from the lack of data confirming maternal or perinatal benefit of treatment, as well as concerns that treatment may impair fetal growth. Okay, so then we need to recap that clinical pearl once again. According to the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine and ACOG, until additional information becomes available, SMFM and ACOG supports current guidelines from the task force that state that pregnant women with mild to moderate chronic hypertension without end organ damage should not be treated with pharmacological antihypertensive therapy. Now, for women starting pregnancy already on medication with blood pressure controlled in the mild to moderate range, the task force actually recommends that although decision-making must be individualized, it's reasonable practice to discontinue medications during the first trimester and restart them if blood pressure approaches the severe range. 
Okay, next, let's cover types of antihypertensive medications and their use in pregnancy. In 2015, the FDA removed the A, B, C, D, and X medication categories for use in pregnancy. Nonetheless, they're still somewhat helpful to use as we talk about antihypertensive medications in this podcast. Angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, are considered class C or were considered class C in the first trimester, but class D in the second and third trimesters. Now, in contrast to non-pregnant individuals with hypertension for whom good data exists, there's no randomized trials to guide how race and other comorbidities should influence the choice of antihypertensive therapy during pregnancy. Alpha-methyldopa is considered a first-line or co-first-line drug by many guideline groups on the basis of the large amount of safety data resulting from its use in pregnancy since the 1960s. A follow-up study of offspring of pregnancies exposed to alpha-methyldopa noted no adverse developmental effects for up to 7 to 8 years of age. The combined alpha and beta blocker labetalol is often recognized as an alternative first-line or second-line agent for the treatment of hypertension in pregnancy. Beta blockers are used less commonly in pregnancy because of concerns about fetal growth restriction raised in some retrospective studies examining the outcomes of pregnancies in which atenolol was used. So here's a clinical pearl. Some organizations recommend that atenolol be avoided in pregnancy as well as during breastfeeding. Now, this is different than the combined alpha and beta blocker, labetalol. Once again, beta blockers alone are used less commonly than labetalol, which is the combined alpha and beta blocker. Now, compared to other medications like alpha-methyldopa or labetalol, there's less data on the use of calcium channel blockers for chronic hypertension in pregnancy. Now, this is opposed to the use of calcium channel blockers for acute indications in pregnancy, like for urgent hypertension, which is one of the medications of choice, or for tocolysis for preterm contractions slash preterm labor. Now, most data available for calcium channel blockers for chronic hypertension in pregnancy focus on long-acting nifedipine. Although there has been theoretical concern that calcium channel blockers could be synergistic with magnesium sulfate when used for a presumptive diagnosis of preeclampsia for eclampsia prevention, leading to neuromuscular depression, this concern was not borne out in large retrospective studies. Now, what about the use of thiazide diuretics? Well, the use of thiazide diuretics in the first trimester of pregnancy has not been associated with increased risk of major birth defects. However, because volume expansion is characteristic of healthy pregnancies, there's been some long-standing concern about the potential diuretic-related volume depletion. However, data do not support this concern, and continuing the use of diuretics in women with chronic hypertension is supported by some guidelines. So let's cover this once again in terms of the angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors. Maternal exposure to ACE inhibitors in the second and third trimesters has clearly been associated with adverse pregnancy outcomes, including impaired renal function leading to oligohydramnios, growth abnormalities, skull hypoplasia, and fetal death 
as well as neonatal anuria and neonatal death. Similar fetal effects have been reported with exposure to angiotensin receptor blockers in the second half of pregnancy. So once again, ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers are contraindicated in pregnancy. The use of ACE inhibitors in early pregnancy was previously thought to be safe, but a 2006 study raised the issue of a potential increase in fetal cardiovascular and central nervous system abnormalities from use and exposure in the first trimester. Now, because of the clear contraindication of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers in the second and third trimesters, the difficulty in dating pregnancies, and because of the large number of women who do not present for prenatal care until the second trimester, many physicians and guidelines recommend avoiding ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers in women planning to conceive or in women of childbearing age altogether because remember that 50% of pregnancies are still unplanned. All right, finally, as we wrap up this podcast, remember that national guidelines do recommend the use of low-dose daily aspirin beginning after the first trimester and carried out until delivery in women with chronic hypertension as a way to prevent the development of superimposed preeclampsia. Okay, that wraps up our podcast covering chronic hypertension in pregnancy. We'll see you next time.